0: The Gospel, wrote Pope Benedict XVI in his 2007 encyclical Space Salvi*, quote, is not merely a communication of things that can be known. It is one that makes things happen and is life changing. The dark door of time, of the future, has been thrown open. The one who has hope lives differently. The one who hopes has been granted the gift of new life, close quote. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to the After Dinner Scholar, the college's weekly podcast. The 2022 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought was held here at the college, June 12th through 17th, and this summer's podcasts have featured introductions to the various readings on the topic, mortality and eternity. While it's hardly an antidote to death, hope allows us to face the fact of our mortality with courage. Quote, the belief that love can reach into the afterlife, wrote Pope Benedict, that reciprocal giving and receiving is possible in which our affection for one another continues beyond the limits of death. This has been a fundamental conviction of Christianity throughout the ages, and it remains a source of comfort today. Close quote. Dr. Michael Boland gave the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought participants this introduction to *Space Salvi*. All right. So, we have looked
1: at quite a few readings this week on the topics of mortality and eternity, and I think that this last one, Benedict's encyclical *Space Salvi*, does a—it's a pretty good piece for weaving together. I think a number of strands that have come out of those readings. I think especially from Ecclesiastes and the Bellarmine reading. And I'll try to get, make a start on doing that in this talk. Uh, it's a bit of a long document, as you may have noticed. <laughs> That's the trend these days. You have to show your uh, paper legitimacy by writing long encyclicals. So, uh, so I'm going to learn myself to some speaking about some points from the beginning and the end. So first I'm going to look at Benedict's account of the idea of hope as what he calls not only informative, but performative. And then I'll look at his account of judgment and justice from the end of the work. So, <clears throat> Catholic thinking on the doctrine of extra ecclesiam nulla salus outside the church there is no salvation, has developed rather noticeably in the past 300 years. In an interview in October 2015, Pope Benedict XVI, then Pope Emeritus, described this development as what he called a profound evolution of dogma. And he added the fo- made the following remarks on it. Quote, while the fathers and theologians of the Middle Ages could still be of the opinion that essentially the whole human race had become Catholic and that paganism existed now only on the margins, the discovery of the new world at the beginning of the modern era radically changed perspectives In the second half of the last century, it has been fully affirmed the understanding that God cannot let go to perdition all the unbaptized and that even a purely natural happiness for them does not represent a real answer to the question of human existence. If it is true that the great missionaries of the 16th century were still convinced that those who are not baptized are forever lost, and this explains their missionary commitment, In the Catholic Church after the Second Vatican Council, that conviction was finally abandoned. From this came a deep double crisis. On the one hand, this seems to remove any motivation for a future missionary commitment. Why should one try to convince the people to accept the Christian faith when they can be saved even without it? But also for Christians, an issue emerged. The obligatory nature of the faith and its way of life began to seem uncertain and problematic. If there are those who can save themselves in other ways, it is not clear in the final analysis why the Christian himself is bound by the requir- requirements of the Christian faith and its morals. If faith and salvation are no longer interdependent, faith itself becomes unmotivated, unquote. So both parts of this double crisis that Benedict mentioned, I think, have the same kernel. What's the point of faith if it's not a requirement for salvation? I won't mention any names, but many people have been bothered by this question. Once one goes down this road, or at least it is often thought, the next step is universalism, the idea that everyone is saved in the end. This, of course, was famously suggested by the theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar and more recently promoted by David Bentley Hart. To a certain way of thinking, universalism is even more troubling. Someone's gotta burn or this all means nothing. But notice, the very question, what's the point of faith if it's not a requirement for salvation, implicitly takes salvation to be purely a fact about one's ultimate destiny and nothing more. It presupposes that faith has no point as regards our lives here and now. This has the dubious implication that Christian moral teachings are just a set of rules to be followed in order to receive a reward, not because they're intrinsically good for us. From an Aristotelian point of view, this would further imply that such teachings are not really moral at all, except in some kind of consequentialist sense. But in *Space Salvi, Benedict argues that the Christian message is not only about a future destiny. It certainly is about that, but it also affects our temporal lives, our lives here and now. It is not only, he says, (coughs) good news, quote, the gospel is not merely a communication of things that can be known. It is one that makes things happen and is life-changing. The dark door of time of the future has been thrown open. The one who has hope lives differently The one who hopes has been granted the gift of a new life. End quote. So the short response to the question, what's the point of Christianity if salvation is possible apart from it, is that the hope of the Christian message is not only for the future, it is also to transform our lives here and now. Benedict further argues that Christian hope is not individualistic. It would not be true hope if it were, since salvation is communal in nature, he says. And so it's of the very nature of the hope in which we are saved that we should want to share it with others. Please answer. And also it doesn't have that satisfying odor of grimstone about it, but there it is. <coughs> <laughs> but what does it all have to do with our pondering of mortality? Ecclesiastes urges us to consider the vanity of all things, a vanity deriving from the fact that the whole material creation is temporal while man has within him an innate desire for eternity and can never be fully satisfied by what passes away. Since we are mortal, what passes away includes ourselves. And yet, as I at least tried to argue in my group, uh, the book does not advocate nihilism or hedonism, or some kind of consequence of that. Instead, the preacher counsels us to eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil. He advocates wisdom over folly, and so forth. So there's a real hierarchy of goods in the world, even if all of them our vanity in, this, in the sense that they kind of ultimately satisfy our longing for eternity. As Christians, we might be too easily tempted to dismiss Ecclesiastes as, as in, a way, in a way no longer relevant. We know about eternal life, while the preacher seems uncertain about it at best. We know there's a life of blessedness that is not vanity. Now let's not be too hasty. First of all, although we may know in some sense that, was, that there is eternal life, We cannot, as Benedict says, know its details. We cannot imagine what it is like. Anything we imagine is going to be based on our experience. It will be fundamentally the same kind of thing, the sort of thing that we would eventually tire of. In other words, vanity. So we are saved in hope, not yet in fullness. We see darkly, not face to face. Eternal life is not life as we know it, but forever. Not the sort of thing Cass is describing. It's a wholly different kind of life that we cannot now conceive. Further, if we are inclined to say, well, we know that not everything is vanity because eternal life, this suggests that we might be missing that life-changing nature of salvation and hope that Benedict described, since even our temporal life is not vanity if it is so transformed. That's why I wanted to begin with that question about salvation outside the church. Nearly every Christian, I think, would be quick to affirm Benedict's words that the one who has hope lives differently. But the fact that some are inclined to think that the possibility of non-Christians attaining eternal life nullifies the value of Christianity shows a failure to grasp the real meaning of those words. This point comes out as well in Benedict's discussion of the naturalistic hope that arises from a humanistic faith in progress. Francis Bacon's vision of a technological conquest of nature and its culmination in the relief of man's estate, as he says, is a kind of hope for salvation in a humanist, natural sense. Benedict, of course, doesn't criticize the idea that we should work to improve human life by this sort of means, but he is emphatic that this cannot replace theological hope. The argument of Ecclesiastes stands. All such human works are vanity Hispandex reasoning is straightforward, quote, Since man always remains free, and since his freedom is always fragile, the kingdom of good will never be definitively established in this world. Anyone who promises the better world that is guaranteed to last forever is making a false promise. He is overlooking human freedom. Freedom must constantly be won over for the cause of good. Free assent to the good never exists simply by itself. If there were structures which could irrevocably guarantee a determined, a good state of the world, man's freedom would be denied, and hence they would not be good structures at all." End quote. In other words, sin is a consequence of human nature, so we cannot rid the world of it without changing human nature, and specifically changing human nature in such a way that we would no longer be free to choose our own actions, and a world without human freedom would be a bad thing, In other words, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And speaking of (laughs) donation, let's get back to the fire and brimstone. You may have noticed that Bandick's portrayal of judgment and God's justice is a bit less terrifying than Bellarmine's. As he notes regarding the portrayal of judgment in the visual arts, quote, as the uh, iconography of the last judgment developed, more and more prominence was given to its ominous and frightening aspects which obviously held more fascination for artists than the splendor of hope, often all too well concealed beneath the horrors," unquote. And if I could, I'd show you uh, Peter Paul Rubin's painting, The Fall of the Damned, which delivers exactly what the title promises (laughs) as an illustration of that. (laughs) Okay. But despite that remark, the concept of a final judgment, or rather the fact of a final judgment is absolutely essential in Benedict's view. And a bit paradoxically, this is because if there's no judgment, there can be no hope. Mm-hmm. Quote, the image of the last judgment is not primarily an image of terror, but an image of hope. For us, that may even be the decisive image of hope, end quote. How is this so? Benedict asserts that the atheism of the 19th and 20th centuries is at root a protest against the injustices of world history. If there were a God, he would establish justice but justice is not established, so there must not be a God. So the last judgment is needed in order that justice may be established. Justice is not done in this life, so there must be another life in which it is done. Then it goes so far as to say, this is the strongest argument in favor of faith and eternal life, which is a pretty interesting claim. <clears throat> it's kind of platonic, I think, in its nature. Right? It's the sort of thing you would see in Plato's Republic or something. <clears throat> he actually, uh, I'll mention this in a minute, but he quotes the Gorgias to that effect. Anyways, this ties into the question about universal salvation. Even if, if one were to adopt the view that all are saved, it would be wrong to understand that in such a way that our earthly actions ended up not mattering. So Benedict says, quote, grace does not cancel out justice. It does not make wrong into right. It is not a sponge which wipes everything away so that whatever someone has done on earth ends up being of equal value. Dostoevsky, for example, was right to protest against this kind of heaven and this kind of grace in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, that wonderful speech that Yvonne gives. <clears throat> Evil doers in the end do not sit at table at the eternal banquet beside their victims without distinction as though nothing had happened, end quote. And then it goes on to quote the Gorgias regarding the need for wicked souls to be punished in order that justice may be done. we see the same thing in the myth of Ur at the end of Republic. In that book, Socrates has argued that it's better to act justly than unjustly, even if justice receives no reward and injustice receives no punishment. But he doesn't want to leave us with the idea that in fact, injustice receives no punishment, just that that's not ultimately the reason for being just. And so there there's another likeness perhaps to Ecclesiastes. While the possibility of eternal life means that our lives need need not only be vanity, even if this possibility did not exist, we ought still to prize wisdom over folly and so forth. Okay, so the last judgment is necessary and sinners must be punished so that justice may be done. What's the nature of this punishment? While Benedict refers us to the traditional imagery of fire, It seems clear that he doesn't want us to put too much weight on that. On more than one occasion, the word is used inside scare quotes. Um, And he seems to speak favorably of the interpretation of certain contemporary theologians that, that the cleansing fire is Christ himself. He says too, we cannot consider the duration of such punishment in terms of earthly time. The important thing is that it will constitute whatever is required by justice and whatever is necessary for the restoration of right order. That's sort of the essential thing based on his argument. A commonly noted feature of this encyclical is that Benedict seems to reject universalism while he affirms majoritarianism, the idea that most are saved, although in need of prior purification. (coughs) He writes, quote, we know from experience that neither case, that is, people who are utterly pure and people who are utterly corrupt, Neither case is normal in human life. For the great majority of people, we may suppose, there remains in the depths of their being an ultimate interior openness to truth, to love, to God. In the concrete choices of life, however, it is covered over by ever new compromises with evil. Much filth covers purity, but the thirst for purity remains, and it still constantly reemerges from all that is base and remains present in the soul. What happens to such individuals when they appear before the judge? Will all the impurity they have amassed through life suddenly cease to matter? What else might occur? Unquote. The what else, of course, is the idea of purgation, purification through fire, or at least a metaphorical fire. So the someone's got a burn thesis, while perhaps overly lurid, has at least that much going for it. <laughs> I want to note also that Benedict is careful to indicate via that parenthetical remark we may suppose that this is his view as a theologian. I don't think he's intended to teach it authoritatively even though it's in an encyclical, mm-hmm. so. So if you wanna believe most are damned, that's fine. At least as far as this passage is concerned. <laughs> what I find most interesting about this part of the document though, is the way in which Benedict describes the internal states of the persons in question and the way in which those states are revealed. <clears throat> Those persons are damned, he suggests, who have totally destroyed their desire for truth and readiness to love. And he adds that alarming profiles of this type can be seen in certain figures of our own history. Notice that this implies that it's sometimes possible to draw inferences from external actions to interior moral states. Otherwise we couldn't know, see profiles of that type in our history. Such inferences can't be done with certainty, of course, but they can be reasonable. <clears throat> On the one hand, this suggests that universalism is unreasonable, since it, that would entirely sever the connection between external acts and interior states. Right? On the other hand, it also suggests that an image such as Bellarmine's lottery is potentially misleading. inasmuch as it could be taken to mean that we are always in complete ignorance about our moral state, as if it were a real lottery, but in reality, both external observation and introspection, internal reflection, offer clues to that state. So where does all this leave us? Should we fear God's punishment, as Bellarmine suggests? This might be a necessary step. Just as in order to acquire the habits of virtue, we need to first habituate ourselves by performing the acts of virtue for other reasons before we have the virtue, sometimes out of fear of punishment or to understand the good beyond vanity. It's helpful to have first pondered the way in which all things are vanity. But Benedict seems to suggest that in the end, fear must give way to love, since it is love that makes us capable of union with God, even if we must first be purified of the crust of sin and corruption. And as the scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. So I wanna connect this to the previous point about the external signs of moral standing. I would argue that this love, even the love of God, is visible primarily in our love of neighbor. I sometimes encounter authors criticizing Vatican II for saying that the great commandment is the love of God and neighbor. The criticism is that these are supposed to be two great commandments. And the first one, the love of God, is greater and more important. More recently, Pope Francis upped the ante by describing the great commandment as love of neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> but, this <is laughs> but this is not, in fact, some Vatican II conspiracy to undermine the importance of loving God. In fact, this way of describing the great commandment goes back to the very beginning. The book of Galatians says all the law is fulfilled in one word. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the reason, I think, is that it's much easier to know whether we love our neighbor than to know whether we love God, because the former is constantly manifested in our everyday actions in a way that the latter is not. So we read something similar in the first epistle of John, right? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so maybe we need that emphasis on love of neighbor, and that's the reason for that focus, not because loving God is not important, but because it's easier to fool ourselves into thinking we love God. Okay, one last thought, and then I'll, then I'll stop. In those pre-Christian texts, we saw sort of the universal human fascination with the idea of the afterlife. Those in the underworld or the overworld, at least some of them, seem to have some kind of special insight that's not available to the rest of us, sometimes insight into the future. Perhaps this is because having passed beyond this life, they are no longer bound by the constraints of time. The mortality that renders all things vanity might, in a paradoxical way, also be the key to life beyond temporality and thus beyond vanity. He has made all things beautiful in their time, but he has put eternity into the heart of man. Thank you.
0: Next week, the After Dinner Scholar podcasts will return to our usual conversational format, featuring our Wyoming Catholic College faculty. If you've enjoyed this series of introductions from the 2022 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought, we've tentatively scheduled the 2023 school for June 11 through 16, 2023. Firm dates and more information will follow but it's not too early to think about attending the program and perhaps making it the beginning of a Wyoming vacation. At this point in the summer, our new class of freshmen are out in the mountains on their 21-day backpacking expedition, and our upperclassmen, faculty, and staff are preparing for the new school year. Please keep us all in your prayers. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.